Hello, and welcome to the Equity Expert Podcast. I'm Jen Namazi, Director of Content for the NASPP. Today, we are going to be talking and conversing about five things to know about mobility tax compliance in the age of remote working. So we know that we've had a big shift over the last year or so, um, huge shifts in remote working. And so this is a very timely topic. Before we get started, I do want to remind everyone that this is just one episode that is part of our overall Equity Expert podcast series. The whole series features discussions with a variety of professionals on some of the practices, trends, and career-related topics in the area of stock compensation. So moving on to our topic of the day, I am joined by Marlene Zabayan, who is a partner at Rutland Associates, LLC. They are a boutique consulting firm helping companies with their global equity plans and or mobile employees. So Personally, I know Marlene, and she is a go-to resource for us on all things employee mobility and global tax compliance related. So I'm really thrilled to have her on the podcast today, and I want to say welcome, Marlene. Thanks. Thanks, Jen. It's an honor to be here. And I, I know there's a lot we can talk about when it comes to employee mobility. I feel like Literally, we could go on for hours, probably, if we get into some of the deep nuances of this, um, especially as things have kind of changed or evolved related to the COVID-19 pandemic and remote working and some of those peripheral things. So I know for time's sake, we decided to focus on five things that people should have on their radar when it comes to mobility compliance, really just kind of related to these transitioning or changing times. So we'll dive in and... I'm going to start with some of the myths and realities, and I think I know where you're headed with this, but I wanted to touch on, I feel like there's there are some myths and realities out there when it comes to monitoring an employee's movements, particularly when it's a voluntary situation. So it's the employee's choice to make that movement. So let's start with that, and I want to just see what your thoughts are on what are some of the myths and realities around that. Well, I think, Jen, you, you've hit the first, the most important one right on the head, which is, yes, it might be an employee's voluntary movement, but it doesn't mean that the employer is absolved of any employer responsibilities just because your employee goes somewhere to work and takes it on themselves and may not even communicate to you, the employer, that they have done this. Now, it doesn't sound fair, and I get that, and I often have to tell my clients that tax law is never logical and it's often not fair, but unfortunately, it is the way the the law works. Many tax authorities will hold the employer responsible, even if the employer doesn't know that the employee is working in that location. Not knowing may help the employer get out of penalties if they haven't been withholding and reporting income to that local tax jurisdiction the way that um, they should have been. It may, you know, they may help mitigate penalties, but it probably doesn't mitigate the taxes due and it probably doesn't mitigate the interest that they might owe as well. Now, I mentioned the term tax jurisdiction, and I just want to be clear that when we're talking about tax jurisdiction, I mean any country or even state, even state that applies a, a type of income tax. The other thing that it's important to know is that it's the longer that the employee is working from that tax jurisdiction, the harder it is as a company to plead ignorance. You know, when, when we first had the lockdown in March of 2020, it was often that, um, you know, it would, it would have been fine if the employee went somewhere for a few weeks and um, 
worked there and the employer didn't know. But now we've been in this for about 15 months. It's really hard. It's going to be harder and harder to convince a tax authority that you didn't know where your employee has been for the last 15 months. And the, the tax authorities will typically hold the company responsible, even if HR and um, payroll stock admin may not know, but the employee's manager did. So it's it's really important to get a good sense of where your employees are because ultimately you will be held responsible. Now, a couple of other points on this. Firstly, sometimes if you have no employer presence in that particular tax jurisdiction, you don't have an entity there, you're not registered for payroll there, that may get you out of payroll registration, payroll filings and withholdings, but you may still be subject to other employer responsibilities, such as, you know, you may be subject to corporate tax there because you have an employee and technically as a corporation, you're doing business in that location. And more importantly, you may be subject to other laws and regulations in that jurisdiction. There was recently been a case in um, Rhode Island. I don't think it's settled yet, but a company was allowing who, a company that doesn't have presence in Rhode Island was allowing an employee to remote work there for years. Well, the employee-employer relationship did not end well, and the employee is trying to sue the employer. And there is now a case to say, well, can they sue in Rhode Island? Well, the employer knew for several years that the employee was working there and allowed them to work remotely from Rhode Island. So it looks like they're going to be subject to jurisdiction in Rhode Island, even though there's no corporate presence there. So there's a whole list of things that go on that are, are going to be related to where the employee works. And it's not fair to say it's not the employer's responsibility necessarily. Now, I do want to say one thing that it is the employee's responsibility, and that is determining where they are tax resident. And this is an important point because tax residency does drive a lot of tax issues, including payroll taxes and the level of payroll tax compliance. Um, but being resident somewhere isn't just dependent on the number of days that an employee spends in that location. The tax laws vary by state and they vary by country as to what constitutes resident or not. But it's often things like what's your intent when the employee arrives there? Are they intending to be there permanently or are they intending to be there just for a short time? Do they have permanent housing available to them? If I leave my home in California and leave it empty and sitting here and go rent a property for two months in Colorado, well, California is going to say, well, you had permanent housing available. It's, it's pretty obvious that you didn't have an intent to stay in Colorado, for example. So availability of permanent housing is the second factor. Location of family, where is the spouse? Where are the kids? And then center of vital interest is also can be important. Things like where are your doctors? Where's your bank account? Where you're in non-pandemic times? Where are your gym memberships? Where are you registered to vote? Where is your driver's license from? So all those things can all indicate where an employee can be deemed to be resident. And they are deeply personal and probably not things that the employer is aware of. So I think it's important for the employer to know where an employee is resident, but it's not the employer's responsibility in this context to make that determination. I think they need to ask the employee to make that determination and inform them. All excellent points. And I completely have the sense that, I mean, there's a lot of unique factors from employee to employee. And I can see where 
you know, the employer really does need have the responsibility to figure out where they are and have them declare their residency. And then the employee has the responsibility to make that assertion to the employer, right? Exactly. exactly. So we've, so I know we've talked a lot about taxes or you've mentioned a lot about um, taxes and that's certainly a really important part of this whole discussion. But I get the sense that there are more than just taxes at stake. So let's talk a little bit through what else what else is at stake beyond just taxes? So the, the first thing that often comes up is immigration and visas. And obviously now we're not talking state to state, we're talking to country to country. Um, and every time that I reach out to one of my overseas contacts and help to help me unravel a situation that one of my clients might be facing, um, you know, an employee that they thought was in Singapore and is actually now in Thailand, the, one of the first things I get back is, you know, is that per, has that individual got the appropriate immigration status to work there? It's very easy to go to another country on a tourist visa. It's technically illegal to work there on a tourist visa, especially if, you know, it's one thing to check your emails for, you know, 20 minutes a day or even two hours a day when you're on vacation. It's another thing to go there with the intention of working there longer term, even if it's less than the six months. So immigration and visa can be very important. Um, benefits coverage could be very important. What what do what do your plans say regarding, you know, medical coverage, dental and vision, even things like life insurance, disability, accident? Is the employee going to be covered while they are there. What is the safety and security concerns regarding your employee? I had one client whose employee wanted to go to Lebanon um, and it was shortly after they had that horrible uh, bomb explosion in the port. And I'm sure that the employee had good reasons to want to go there, but the employer wanted to protect the employee and also make sure that they were going to be safe. So that was something they had to take into consideration. The other thing you have to take into consideration is, is the employee going to have secure access to the internet? If the employee is going to be using phones, laptops, um, and, you know, doing work that may be confidential for your, for your company, can you be comfortable that your information is secure in the location that they are at? Labor laws, we've talked about the case that is in Rhode Island, um, and, and that's going to apply just about everywhere where the employee might be working, especially if you've sanctioned them to work there. You, you, you know, you, the labor laws outside the U.S. can be much stricter than the labor laws within the U.S. So are you comfortable that you are your company is now subject to those labor laws because you have a remote employee working there? And this can actually go both ways. I have a friend who's in HR in San Francisco, and she's had employees who've moved out of San Francisco. But San Francisco has some good maternity benefits. And now that the employees have moved out, they're no longer eligible for the city-mandated benefits that they otherwise would have been had they stayed in San Francisco and remote work from there. Business licenses are another one. I actually talked to somebody who works at um, one of the broker uh, brokerages who was telling me that he'd been thinking about working remotely from another state for a couple of months and then realized that he didn't have the right broker's license to be able to work in that state. So, you know, things like business licenses could be important. But even just, you know, th there's a whole range of breadth of things that are at stake here. But even for equity comp, things like if so, you have somebody who moves back to China, 
they were a US employee, did you take account on them and their safe filings? Are they now subject to your safe filings? If they are now in a location where you as a company need to make a securities filing, are they going to be subject and do they need to be included in that um, securities filings? So there's a whole range of um, non-tax specific issues that come up when your employees are working remotely. So I know we're going to get to this in a little bit and you're going to give us some recommendation on how employers can really kind of manage through all of this because there is a lot at play here. Um, I want to turn it back to taxation for just a moment because there is this concept of like double taxation or double reporting or withholding. It just seems like with people moving around and employers not always sure, or maybe they are sure, but they're not really sure how to handle the tax withholding and reporting. It just seems like there's a recipe there for duplicates or double reporting or making mistakes there. So do you want to talk through a little bit about those scenarios and what's the lay of the land when it comes to those? Sure. And I, I think that's a really important point, Jen. Um, you know, double taxation truly is rare. Um, it's very, you have to have a really bad set of circumstances to end up in a situation where the employee is double taxed. But it's not unusual to have a situation where the employee is subject to double withholding or double reporting on their income. So um, just, just to step back and explain, usually where the employee is resident at the time that a transaction is taking place, that resident jurisdiction will um, probably tax the individual on worldwide income, but will probably give a credit for taxes they pay to another jurisdiction. And I do want to tangent here a little bit and just say U.S. states typically only give credits for taxes paid to other U.S. states, whereas U.S. federal will give credits for taxes paid to other countries or, you know, vice, vice versa. So your resident location will um, typically tax worldwide income with a credit for other taxes. Your non-resident location will only tax sourced income, and that's the income that arises in that jurisdiction. Um, it is a pretty detailed concept, so rather than go to it in, in the podcast, I do want to refer people to the, um, the discussion of sourcing in the um, advisor article on mobility compliance in the age of COVID-19 and remote working, which I think is in the spring issue of the advisor. Um, and we do have a, a write-up there on what sourcing means, but generally it, it refers to income that arises in that location. So in, in a non-resident location, you would only be taxed on the income that arises there. In the resident location, you're taxed on worldwide income, and there's typically three ways that the company, uh, the country or state wants you to handle, wants you, the employer, to handle that situation. There are some jurisdictions that say, okay, employer, withhold and report everything, and the employee will have to claim a credit on their tax return. So a very um, famous example of this is Canada. It comes up all the time. They want full withholding and reporting unless you get a special exemption from the Canadian Revenue Agency. Wisconsin or Oregon are states that want the same. Everything is taxed, subject to withholding upfront, employee claims a credit on their return, the employee is not double taxed at the end of the day, they're just double withheld. There are other places, other jurisdictions that want the employer to report the full income, 
but withhold on a reduced income. So California, where, I, um, where I'm resident, is typical of this. So is New York and New Jersey. You report the whole income for California or any jurisdiction that wants the full reporting, but the withholding is reduced because they know that at the end of the day, there's other taxes that will be claimed as a credit. So the employee is not double withheld, they're just double reported. And there are some jurisdictions like the UK where only the income that will be sourced to that jurisdiction is reported and subject to withholding. So there's differences in tax treatment, but in all of these, the employee, after they file their tax returns, ends up in a place where they're not subject to double taxation, but they could have been subject to double reporting and even double withholding. Um, true double taxation does occasionally occur, but it is it is actually very rare. Okay, so you know, you've kind of walked us through, you know, it's the employer's responsibility and some of the other um, considerations, taxes plus the other you know, considerations in play here. So when I look at that holistically, it's like, okay, there's a lot to think about here. And, you know, there are employees who are moving about voluntarily and, you know, some not voluntarily, but what is your recommendation on what do companies do to really address a lot of the things they need to be kind of keeping under their radar or wraps or control when it comes to these mobility situations with their remote employees? So I think the time has come to implement a remote working policy if you have not done so already as a company. And what a remote working policy does is it really gives the framework of where your employees can work remotely from and what permissions they will need in order to be able to work remotely from that jurisdiction. So, you know, we've talked a lot about labor laws, immigration visas, benefits coverage, security, internet security, etc. There's also practical issues that the company, in particular, the business unit needs to take into account, such as time zone overlap with customers and the team, depending on what the employee's um, responsibilities are. And the policy can also talk about, well, what expenses is the company going to reimburse? Are they going to, um, if there are town hall meetings or meetings that the employee is going to physically need to attend, is the company going to pay for travel to the meetings, even if the employee had voluntarily decided to work for, for a different um, from a different location? So those companies who haven't done so already, they really need to get a working group together to get all the relevant stakeholders in the room and go through the list of things that are important to those stakeholders, including business unit representation. And they need to sort of come up with a remote working policy and obviously communicate it to the employees. I've seen, I've worked with a lot of companies over the last year on, on this very topic, and I've seen anything from, okay, work anywhere type of policy to a, you really need permission to work from anywhere else other than your employment location. And I actually had to talk that extreme company down to say, you know, you need to make an exception for people who go to Hawaii on a two-week vacation and take their laptop with them. They shouldn't need to ask your permission for that level of remote working. So, you, you know, you need to be practical and long-term about it because we're not always going to be in pandemic conditions and people are going to travel. So you need to think about how your remote policy, remote work policy will play out in, um, in the longer term. Um, but I've seen the whole gambit from work anywhere up to, you know, work anywhere is rare, but work anywhere up to, say, 30 or 60 days. 
Um, and it may be different for different countries and states. I certainly have clients that say 31 days in the US and, and 180 days overseas, for example, uh, because with 180 days, they're typically covered under a double tax treaty. So that would be sort of at the more permissible end of the, the spectrum. I've had clients that will say, work anywhere where we have an existing entity with the idea that they will transfer the person to that to the payroll of that particular entity when, when the person decides to work remotely from that location. Um, I have clients that say, work anywhere in the US, but overseas only where we have a different entity. And again, the, the, the conservative extreme of this is you have to get permission to work anywhere else. You also need as part of the policy to think about what this means to the compensation package for the employee and whether you're going to somehow tweak that, including the, possibly the number of future stock grants um, based on the location they are working from. So yeah, get your stakeholders in, in the room, go through the list of issues, many of which we've talked about today, but I'm sure there are corporate specific issues that each company needs to deal with and then find a policy that works for everybody as best as possible in, in the room. All right. Well, I think it's definitely time for companies to really be moving towards that remote work policy. And I want to come back for our last point uh, or area of focus. I want to come back to something you touched on briefly at the beginning. And I think it's along the lines of, I think there was this idea like, well, if a company didn't know or they kind of looked the other way or it's just like wasn't keeping track of things, where's that balance between like, I didn't know or I didn't keep track or do I need to keep track? Um, where would you orient companies in their thinking around that? Yeah, and I, um, I think part of this for everybody has been that the pandemic has evolved and I, d I certainly did not see it going on as long as it did. And definitely things like the remote working um, phenomenon, um, I did not predict that. So I think, you know, we're all learning and evolving. But I will say that it was one thing when um, we shut down initially last year, and at least for where I live, we were initially shut down for three weeks. And then it got extended to another six weeks. And obviously, here we are 15, 16 months later, we're still in some level of shut down. So I think it was one thing for that initial three-week period to say, okay, we don't know where they are. We're going to let it go. And maybe even for the next six-week period, but I think 15 months on, you can't really afford to ignore this anymore as a company. Um, not only has it gone on too long, um, a lot of the a lot of tax jurisdictions put in specific exemptions for COVID situations. You know, people who were who hadn't intended to be stuck there were stuck there because there was no way for there was no transportation for them to get on a plane or get on a train and go somewhere else. So they they got stuck in places, and there was a lot of exemptions uh, for tax regarding those situations, and those have all now expired. And I think it's just this whole idea of remote working has received a lot of attention. Um, it's it's got a lot of attention in the press. There's there's been articles, several articles about countries that are inviting remote workers to get visas and work there. I know I saw one on the Bahamas and it sounded really great. Um, they were offering remote workers visas to go and work there. Um, there's been a lot of articles in um, you know just even state to state remote working. So 
my prediction is that states are going to come out and start auditing companies probably in 2022 or 2023 onwards. Um, I know if I was running a state tax authority, I, I would think that this would be something that would be very um, sort of easy pickings, if you will. Certain states, such as Massachusetts and New York, have already put out guidance as to what they expect employers to do. In fact, so did so did California. So I think there's just been too much press that a company can no longer afford to ignore. And so the right thing to do at this point is if you're if you're with a company that's done nothing to date, is to try and get working on that policy and then apply some sort of survey to your employees to find out where they are so that you can tax them appropriately going forward. Or, you know, sometimes the message has to be pens down or come home. But I think we're past the point where a company can afford to ignore this issue. You've really got to take action to mitigate some of your larger exposure areas. Well, I think that's an excellent note to end on. And definitely, I think that this conversation has really helped gain more clarity around what should companies be doing and what are the real considerations here that they need to have on the radar. So I want to thank you for this conversation, Marlene. I think this was really insightful. And hopefully everyone listening has gained a little bit more clarity on where and how to focus those mobility efforts around their remote workers. This, I'm sure, will continue to be a work in progress and a concept that companies really kind of need to get their arms around. So for those wanting more in-depth information on this topic, we do have some additional resources. So Marlene wrote a longer article that she referenced um, earlier in this episode um, on multi-jurisdictional tax compliance in the age of COVID-19 and remote working. That article was part of our NASPP Advisor newsletter in spring 2021. We will have a link to it in the show notes for this episode. Um, she's also authored an article on state-to-state -state mobility issues for equity compensation professionals, and that is also available on our website. We will also put a link to it in the show notes as well. So um, check out those resources. And then also feel free to reach out to Marlene directly if you do have mobility needs or questions. And Marlene, how best to contact you? Uh, yeah, there's a contact uh, point on our website, and that's www.rutlen.com. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again, Marlene. It's been great chatting with you for a little bit, and we will see everyone on the next episode.